Hi, everyone. I'm Jill Smokler, and I've got issues. I've got a ton of issues, actually, and I'm pretty sure you do, too. And I'm positively sure we'll both feel better having talked about them. And that's what this podcast is all about. So let's get started. So I am Jewish by birth, but I have never been religious. I pretty much took my bat mitzvah hall and ran, and that was the end of it. It's not something I'm particularly proud of, um, but it made me all the more surprised by how much I related to today's guest, who is a rabbi here in Baltimore. And we are also parents of kids the exact same age, actually. Um, And she's someone I just always love catching up with. And she runs what's called the Soul Center, which is, look it up because it's amazing. Um, And I just have so much respect for her. So I'm really excited to um, have this talk. Rabbi Dana Sorokin has been the rabbi at Temple Bethel since 2007, when she became the congregation's first female rabbi. In addition to serving as rabbi, she is the spiritual director and founder of the Alvin and Lois Lapita Center for Healing and Spirituality, also known as the Soul Center. Rabbi Sorokin was chosen to participate in the Knesta Cohort for Jewish Startups, holds a prestigious Schusterman Fellowship, and was honored as one of Jewish women's 10 women to watch. I love where you started because I think in some ways um, a lot of people are feeling that sort of sense of I, I don't want to I don't want to name it as darkness. I think it's more complex than that, but a sense of perhaps compassion fatigue um towards the world, a sense of like wherever you look, whether it's like the news that you're watching or the you know, the articles that you're reading, it feels like there are crises and trauma and tragedy everywhere. And so the question is like, you know, how do you sort of shift your lens so that you don't only see that? And and I actually, I, I want to back up for a minute and say, I actually appreciate that in order to feel that you have to have a big heart that's soft enough, right? That still isn't hardened to the realities of, of hardship and loss and all of those other things. It's funny you say that. I just, it reminds me, somebody asked me, I was rushing around running errands the other day and somebody asked me how I was. I was like, I'm just really, really overwhelmed. You know, everything feels so stressful. And then there's the environment. And she was like, your environment? Oh. Are you moving? What's going on? I was like, well, no, the, the larger Bigger environment. Aren't you impacted by that? <laughs> I know. I know. Actually, it's funny that you said that there was like a a, a fun chapter in Glennon Doyle's book, um, Untamed, I think it was, that was... You know, at some point she was talking about her child and her child was in kindergarten and the in the classroom they were teaching about polar bears and like this idea that the polar bears are dying. And she was like, you know, at, the teacher was like, and now they're all dying. And then she was like, time for recess. And all the kids like ran <laughs> right. and she's like sitting there crying, you know, right. and then and it's the adopts the bear ways, and all of the Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So I think in some ways the the idea is is like, how can we be human? and sort of allow ourselves a space to feel the the hard stuff. And then also, I think, Jill, to your point, how can we not feel it in such a way that it paralyzes us or it starts to feel like, you know, I don't want to get out of bed because the world sucks right now and there's too much for me to like manage and I feel helpless and I can't do anything, but I know it's happening out there. And, you know, and I think in some ways the the 
the key, I think, or the sort of like ideal place to be is holding all of the beauty in the world at the same time as we hold the brokenness. Um, and I think that it's when we can do that, that we can like sort of keep ourselves rejuvenated to the place where we can feel hope still and feel powerful enough to, to be a part of, of change or an agent for change in the world. And that we live with an awareness of like crappy things are happening all over the world. So right now, let me pause for a minute and just say like, this sunset is gorgeous. Or like the fact that like, I can, I, I have the resources and the ability to like, you know, just sit in a, you know, in a, in a place where I am free and safe and, you know, all of these other things and really appreciate it. And so I would say in terms of like what you're asking, Jill, I would say, and, you know, for me, one of the really important things to do is to actually start the day. And I'm going to go back to that place that you said, like, sometimes it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. And I think that like, for many people, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning, you know, whether, whether it's mental health challenges, whether it's overwhelm, whether it's an inbox, it just feels like I can't conquer it, you know, or just sort of that feeling of like, I don't even know what to do with my day, right? There are so many different reasons that people sort of feel stuck before they even start or open their eyes with that, like feeling in your gut, which is like a little bit of dread or like a desire to hit the snooze button. Um, and, and I think I, you know, just to start there, that for me, one of the things that I've tried to do is actually, and, and by the way, I failed miserably at this this morning, you know, my Noah had her wisdom teeth pulled last, you know, yesterday. And so at like two forty-five, you know, she needed, you know, comfort and meds. So this morning I did hit my doze button, but I do my best to actually start the day when I intend to start the day. Um, and to push myself to begin my day, like literally in bed, the first thing that I do is say a prayer. And, and it doesn't matter to me if, if it's a scripted prayer or it's a prayer from the heart. My prayer that I pray is a, is a traditional prayer. It says, which means like, thank you God for returning my soul to me and enabling me to open up my eyes to a new day. And then I say, like, may, may I be given the ability to experience this day as a blessing? May I um, live, you know, sort of live within this day as a blessing? May I look for the blessings around me? May I acknowledge the blessings? And may I be a blessing to the world today? And then sometimes I remind myself that this is like, this is a day that never before has been and never again will be. And, and I feel like just in doing that, like I pause before all of those other feelings, you know, you know, pop up, which is the, like my meeting, my inbox, I have to fill out a form. I, you know, need to get my dad to the doctor, like all of those things that happen when you are in our generation. And instead I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Like before the craziness begins, let me just say like, thank you God for this day. And, and by the way, like, even if you're not if, if, like, you know, even if you're not a religious person and, and are like, I'm not really sure I want to thank God for the day, then just say like, thank you for the day. Like just put well, it out into the world. I was going to say, so there is something to the whole gratitude thing. It's not just a sign that I see at home goods. <laughs> there really is. Oh my gosh, Jill, I am all about like, 
I literally, I think that gratitude is life-changing. And I don't mean living gratefully, right? Like I mean, actually pausing and trying to connect with that, which is good in the world. And especially in those times where things feel really bad in the world, right? I feel like it's precisely in those moments that like, I would say to someone like, when you feel like right now, like, I just can't, right? Like you feel in your own, like, I just can't. But then I always will say to people like, grab one friend, grab two friends, grab, you know, it doesn't matter what your number is and say to them, like, I need to focus on, on, on the good and the blessings and, and being grateful right now, because it is really hard for me right now to see that, which is good in the world and in my life. Would it be all right if every day we send each other three things that we feel grateful for? And then, you know, what I found when I've done that, you know, if I'm not in a great place is that like my gratitudes and reflecting on what's good, makes me feel better. But then I also have my friends' gratitudes and I feel happy yeah. for them, you know, when they, and I feel I connected. And you it's know, a so, non-braggy way for them to share what they might not be inclined to share yeah. Otherwise. And it's, I love that. Yeah. And it's funny because I love your like non-braggy way, right? Like it's different than Facebook. Yeah. You know, it's, I think in some ways, like for me, the, the most beautiful part of gratitude is thinking really small. Hmm. Right. So like most people are inclined to say like, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my, I mean, by the way, I don't know if you are like, you know, I'm grateful for my friends. <laughs> I'm grateful for my health. My I'm grateful for, <laughs> right, right. So like all of that, but like, I feel like that just sort of feels like cursory and in some ways perfunctory. And that doesn't bring me any joy to say any of those things because it's not, it's not tangible. Right. But when I say, I'm really grateful that my cousin, you know, who oftentimes struggles, you know, and can sometimes disappear that she reached out to me yesterday and seemed to mm -hmm. be doing, seemed to be doing well, or I'm really glad, like, I'm really grateful that when my daughter woke up in the middle of the night, that I was, I was able to soothe her or that mm -hmm. she came looking for me, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think in some ways, like sometimes I'm just grateful for like a warm mug of tea, like of water because that feels gentle and it, you know, so I think in some ways not trying to have extraordinary moments each day but to have a simple moment where like, you know, someone, you know, someone held a door for you mm -hmm. where the person at the cashier, you know, the cashier at Trader Joe's, like, you know, brought his or her fabulous spirit to your day and made you feel good about the bananas, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yep, yep, so, totally. so I would say like morning gratitudes, I think are spectacular. Okay. And I actually think at the end of the day, you know, evening gratitudes. And I think one of the things that, that you might find or people might find is that if you start out with three, gratitude begets gratitude. And then mm. soon you're like, wait, there's more. And then, you know, I, I hit 10 every day, mm -hmm. but then I, I always like there's, once you start to look for good things, you see it. And yeah. I think back to your original point, Jill, like, you know, there are a lot of images in our world you know, and a lot of like newsreels and a lot of voices that are telling us all the really bad stuff. And so it's nice to balance that out, not to be, um, I don't ever want to close my eyes to the harsh realities of what truly is, 
but I also want to keep my eyes open to the other realities, which is like amidst all of the hard stuff, there's a lot of real beauty. I like your point about it being the little things to focus on because I tend to, that's what tends to overwhelm me is just the big, big picture. And even when I make wishes, like anytime, you know, you put pennies in or birthday wish, I have the same routine that I run through with every family member that I, who I love and like every, every person who I want to keep safe. And it's like this whole ridiculous routine that I've had <laughs> since I can remember. Um, and it's fine, but I don't really take the time. It's just a routine to think about, you know, if this person, if I really want to send warm thoughts to this person in particular and really spend time, you know, appreciating that person in my life or, um, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny. I, I oftentimes, um, I, I, I have a group that meets, um, through the weekdays at eight 45, it's called morning gratitude, literally. And, um, one of the things I'll say is like, we'll give people time to, to work on their gratitude lists. And I'll say like, like lightly smile while you're doing it. Right. Like you can't treat feeling grateful, like another to do. <laughs> You know, the idea of it is that you can like you can remember things that that were nice and lovely and felt good for even a moment and that reconsidering them will make you feel happy all over again or that sort of like boost again. And 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 I would add to that, Jill, that, you know, for me, when I know that things are real, when I do have a smile or a tear or whatever it is, like, like thinking about it is moving me. Um, the other thing that I really like as, um, you know, as a way to anchor ourselves is um, in Jewish prayer, um, there's sort of a structure of, uh, I mean, I love the ark. It starts out with sort of prayers of wow um, or praise, then it goes to prayers of like requests, and then it's prayers of thanks. So what I like to do is to create and to like encourage people that don't necessarily have a prayer life um, to, to think about like, dear God, wow, dear God, help, and dear God, thanks. And those are like the three categories. And you put your own prayer there. But what I also like sort of getting back to what you mentioned earlier is that you start and you end with sort of wow and thank you, right? Wow and gratitude. But in the middle is like, God, I really need you, right? And then that's sort of where you can pour your heart out and say like, you know, you know, this person is, is really struggling right now, you know, can you help, you know, can you help create support? Can you bring healing? Can you give me the strength that I need to Right, Like all of those things go into the help, which is like beautifully, you know, packed in the middle of wow and thanks. And I feel like that too is like a nice way to pause some days and just feel like I got to sort of like organize my emotions and my thoughts and that structure or framework can help me to do that when I feel like everything's really messy because sometimes mm. the world feels really messy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Just a little bit. Um, did you always know you wanted to be a rabbi? No, no. Um, I grew up in a 
home where Judaism was important, but we weren't observant. We weren't, um, I would say that like we sort of did some holidays and were, you know, connected, affiliated with the synagogue, but it wasn't until I was older, like in my late teen years where I started to really feel like there were things within Judaism that I was learning and coming to understand that I felt like actually not only improved my life, but made me feel guided and certain and inspired. And so I really started my sort of, I would call it like more religious journey, um, you know, in my, I would say like college days. Yeah. Yeah. And did you think it would lead you down the path that it, that it did back then? You know, I really didn't, I really didn't think too much about it. Um, you know, I, uh, one of, one of my parents' rules when I was growing up is that we had to leave the house in the summer. Um, my camp closed down and I like needed a quick place to go. Cause I did sort of believe that like, I, I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to stay home in the summer. Um, and I had a friend whose sister had been in Israel and she had a really good time. And I was like, oh, so I looked into that and, um, the 92nd street Y in Manhattan, um, was running a trip. So I went on the trip and I really, there's something magical about being in Israel. Fast forward, I went back um, my junior year in college to Tel Aviv. I wasn't in Jerusalem, right? Like that too is like sort of telling. Like I was really excited. It was a four-day week. I was on the beach, which is a happy place. Like I was really, it was very fitting for me in that time. But um, I kept finding myself like being pulled towards Jerusalem um, and there, like, I met some people, I do, started doing some learning, I started living sort of a little bit differently. And then Shabbat was really sort of what was the game changer in my life. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's funny, but I think more than ever, uh, Shabbat at the time became an opportunity for me to um, to to sort of have community and to, to have good food and, you know, some song and good people around me. Um, but over the last, you know, decades since Shabbat has like saved my life over and over and over again. How so? You know, I work, I work really hard, you know, like in, in my professional life and in my personal life too. Um, my family life, and I feel like, um, like I give life my all. And then, um, when Friday comes, um, I like, I let it all go. Like I, when I scramble, you know, rush all of that stuff that everyone else does. But then when the sun, you know, at dusk on Friday, when the sun is about to come down, um, I light candles and then I am totally unplugged for 25 hours 
there's not a phone, there's not a text, there's not an inbox, there's no computers, there's no televisions. Like it's literally like whatever's done is done. Whatever's not done is not done. And then for the next 25 hours, um, life becomes manageable and it becomes rejuvenating and it becomes joyful in the way of like, whoever is, you know, like it becomes more real. It's not virtual. My life isn't virtual and it's not voyeuristic. It's, it's literally whatever I've planned, whatever meals I've planned, you know, I show up at shul, I rest, I read books that are delightful and leisurely. You know, I take walks without a phone, which is totally different than when I walk my dog with my phone and, you know, check boxes. Yeah, it sounds like a detox that could do everybody some good. You know, it's it's funny. There was, um, it was many, many years ago now, but there was an article, I think, in the New York Times, and it was about someone who, um, I do not actually believe was Jewish, but wrote an article about how there were sort of two sacred places in his life that had been left at the time. One was the airplane and the other was his bed. And he realized that like he had been sitting on the airplane in like one of those seats that has the phone right in front of you. And he said, I took a like international trip and I talked the entire way. And he said, and then I realized that like, you know, in my bed every day, which is like the sort of sacred place, like the last thing I do is like, I check my, you know, I'm on my phone. And the first thing I do when I wake up is check my phone. And he was like the, like neither of those places feel sacred anymore. And so he said he was going to try to create a virtual day of rest. And he took 24 hours and actually like not Jewish, not for the sake of God, like for the sake of his own soul. He was like, what, what would it, he experimented with like, what would it feel like if I allowed myself one of seven days to actually like unplug and just be. And I think in some ways, like, you know, it's, for me, it's about like unplugging, but it's also about like allowing myself to be a human, like being rather than a human doing, you know, and just sort of saying like, if I choose to go out for a run because I enjoy running great, if I choose to go out for a run because I've gained like 12 pounds that are extra and I'd like to lose them, then that's not in the spirit of Shabbat because Shabbat is like about, it's about recognizing that like, <laughs> you don't always have to be striving and aspiring and, you know, like working so hard. Like sometimes you can give yourself space to just say like, it's enough. Like whatever I have in this moment, like it's enough. That's oh, a wonderful way of, of seeing it. I mean, who could not benefit from that? Does your family, are they, do they take that 25 hours as well? Um, it's super interesting. Um, I would say, yes, we do Shabbat as a family. Um, I have, well, I can name names on your show. Um, Noah, my middle daughter. Um, so I have 19 now, a 19 year old son, a 17 year old daughter. And if she just turned 15 year old daughter, um, my middle one is less, I would say she's less observant of the sort of like Shabbat parameters, but, um, as it turns out, literally we just did college applications and what does she talk about in every, like, you know, like essay rapper, she talks about Shabbat dinner. So we have a, 
we in the communal space there there's no technology anywhere um but i never like when she was growing up i sort of came to it as like we're going to lose some battles and win the war my hope was that she would see beautiful things within religion um and thankfully it really did work so yeah you know and i think i mean i think she's in her room texting friends sometimes but she's not in her room for very long which i also appreciate like she doesn't um the the rest of us are sort of fully off i don't think that matters as much to her but um for all of my kids i i think that they would say that like their interpersonal skills their ability to care about care for engage with people um their ability to sort of like go out into the world with gusto i think they would say it's because of shabbat yeah which is nice i mean yeah right i mean that's so nice it's about i know i mean who knew it was gonna work jill (laughs) (laughs) it's wonderful when those things that you question actually come back in a positive way it's so funny and and actually you'll you'll maybe appreciate this but you know when when the kids were young we always have like a nice crowd for shabbat dinner um, every once in a while we do like a smaller crowd, but we usually have a pretty like eclectic and in, eclectic and interesting group. And, um, and when the kids were really little, I used it as an opportunity to teach them like how to welcome guests, how to interact with people, how to sort of keep a balanced conversation. Um, and we would like Monday morning quarterback it on Sunday. So like, how did it go? Was there anyone who like, you know, you notice like didn't really like, you know, wasn't really that engaged or didn't really like have their, you know, spotlight or ability to like share what might we have done to help, you know, draw out that person or their ideas and, you know, how might we have made that person feel. So it, I, I do actually feel like it's really nice to have, especially when you have teenagers, opportunities to just gather and have all eyeballs and all focus. No, that's very sweet. It makes me, um, wish that I had more of that. My my stepmom is very observant and she does Shabbat every week and they do a prayer over the children when we're there, which is so sweet. And it's really nice being a part of it. There's something just really nice about ending the week like that. Um, yeah. So, And by, by the way, Jill, if I yeah. can for a minute, just, I actually would say to anyone who's listening to that you know, I think in some ways, like the world, especially post-pandemic, or even during the pandemic, we probably needed rituals more than ever. But I do think that, like, you know, it's a nice opportunity to, you know, e- even if you're not doing a whole Shabbat, but to say, like, at, on Fridays, I'm going to send, you know, send my kids or send my parents or send my whomever it is in your life, like, you know, maybe it's a text message to say, like, you know, as we go into the weekend or as we go into Shabbat, like, or as we, you know, I, I just wanted to say, you know, something that you're proud of, something that you're grateful for, something that you saw them, you know, do or experience or, you know, something that week, because I think, you know, people, people are really, I think not only yearning, but in need of being witnessed and seen, you know, I think that that's so much of like why social media is what it is, you know, that people really, you know, they want to feel like they matter in the world. And so even if you start a practice, you know, with your inner circle, just sort of acknowledging and honoring that someone's life makes your life better, 
or enriches your life in some way, I think it's a beautiful practice. So I'd love to know, Rabbi Sorokin, what are some of your favorite things about Judaism? I will say that um, that Shabbat is definitely like, it's like my end-all be-all. Um, I feel like it keeps me alive. It makes me whole. It replenishes me. It Without Shabbat, I fear that like my, my real life, and I use that sort of in quotes, but like that it would be about my Monday to Friday productive life as opposed to shifting that through Shabbat and being like, oh, wait, I got to think about who I love to invite, you know, for dinner um, and who do I want to be with on a day of rest. So I feel like Shabbat is like the thing that I love most. Um, I also, uh, the one other thing we didn't touch on with Shabbat is that like not spending money for 25 hours is also pretty cool. And not driving for 25 hours is also cool because it keeps me like sort of in my like nice little bubble. Um, And it takes away the wanting. The one time that like Judaism was the hardest for me was, um, oh gosh, there was a day that I don't remember what day it was on. It was like a holiday that was like about like, I don't even know what it was. I have to think about it, but it came on the same day as like Amazon prime day. And I was like, no, no, don't do this to me. <laughs> There's so horrible. many things, right? Like on one hand, it was like the Jewish tradition was telling me like, you have enough. Like, oh, no, like funny. you have everything you need. And then Prime Day was like, no, no. you need so many other things, <laughs> you know, that you're going to miss out on if you don't get them today. Um, so I would say Shabbat. And then I would also say, and I would say that the Torah, like I, I feel like, you know, there are some TV shows. I don't know if you have this too, where you're like, I can connect with anybody in the world that watched that show. You know what I mean? Like Quantico was one of my shows. Like I loved Quantico. Friday Night Lights. Love. I mean, it's not, there's nothing profound about it. It just is so delightful. Or like Ted Lasso for a lot of people is like that, right? It's like, you watch Ted Lasso. I watch Ted Lasso. Like, like we speak the same language because you experienced that too. And you got it. I, I feel like for me, the, Torah is that where like, you know, I remember when my kids were young and like, we were reading the Joseph story, you know, it was like from in Genesis and we were reading the Joseph story. And I remembered like, you know, something happened and a little while back, I like came back and said to one of my kids, like, do you remember in the Joseph story when Joseph brothers like couldn't even say a kind word to him and like threw him in a pit and then sold him to slavery like do you remember why they did that and the whole reason for it was that he was like sort of he was too boastful and somewhat narcissistic and like all he seemed to care about was like you know himself and his dreams and him 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 and I said like that's a really people people don't want to be in relationship with other people that are consumed with with them, right. With, with just the self, it's a, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a beautiful way to live. And because we had that shared story, we were able to talk about like, you know, what does it mean to consume an entire dinner with like a story of, of you, (laughs) you know, like, or, you know, 
you know, I think in so many ways, like the Torah teaches us about like, you know, it teaches about, about regret and it teaches us about competition between siblings. And it teaches us about what it means to feel like the less loved child in your family structure. And what does it mean to have a friend that, um, who will follow you, you know, and who will be by your side, no matter what life brings their way, you know, your way. Like, I think in some ways, like Torah teaches us, like, how do we stand in, in the moments of uncertainty and not lose hope that something good is to come, right? Like that's the story of like the wilderness, right? Like how do we, how do we recognize the individual meltdown, the communal meltdown? And that like a lot of times that comes because, you know, we're scared, you know, and, and when you can see your story in the Torah story and the story of our ancestors, and when you can see in their story, your story, I feel like you just feel like you're a part of something much bigger than yourself. And that not only is it going to be okay, but that, you know, you're not, you're not out there alone. You know, you've got generations of the past, you've got, you know, your people of today and you've got a whole future, you know, and I think in some ways, like all of that comes through Torah, those reminders that we're not the first, we won't be the last and it's not only us. Women our age are struggling so much, especially with connection and isolation. We know that. Uh, how does how can Judaism help strengthen that for us? Because we certainly need it. You know, it's so interesting, Jill, because. Because I feel like in some ways, um, you know, when your kids start to launch, you know, or you're preparing for that anticipatory, you know, feelings, um, whether that's grief or elation or whatever it might be, depending on your relationship with your kids um, and your life, really. Um, You know, I feel like, um, okay, Maimonides, who was a very famous rabbi and um, thinker and doctor. He, um, he's very famous because he has something called the hierarchy of giving, which is like, how are we supposed to give in, in our lives? Like, do you start with, you know, your family and then go to the community and then broaden out to the, you know, to your tribe and then to your people, you know, sort of like a whole, um, a hierarchy, if you will. But what he says, which is so beautiful to me is that he has a hierarchy of friendship and he says that there are three tiers of friendships. So the the sort of um, the the lower level of friendship um, is um, that there are people that you basically like share um, you know, sort of circumstantial friendships with, right? You live next door to them. Your kids go to the same preschool. You know, you're on the PTA with them if you do PTA, right? Like they work in your office. Like they're people that you sort of like, you know, in some ways like orbit through life with. And do they care about you? Yep. Do you care about them? Yep. That's like a one level of friendship. But then he says there's a next level of friendship, which is like, these are people that you can share your hopes and your dreams with, right? There are people that um, you enjoy doing things with. And you care about each other and 
care about supporting each other on, on this journey. And that's like a second level of friendship. And then what my Maimonides says is that then you have like that next level friendship. And he says that those are the friends that like your, your aspirations, your intentions, your honor, your well-being is as important to them as their own. Right. That those are the people that you like share, like your innermost, like longings, yearnings, love, you know, like all of that. And they do with you or, and they mate with you. And those are the people who <laughs> I feel like are the ones who help you to become the best version of yourself that you aspire to be. And I think in some ways, like that structure, I think is super helpful because it actually explains like a lot of like people's disappointment in friends. You know, if you think that like your friend didn't show up for you, well, maybe they were just like a level one friend, you know, like. Yeah. yeah your expectations are much more realistic if you're not thinking that someone's going to fill everything for you. Right. Like not yeah. everyone's going to be that like real, like upper level friend, like we're so lucky if in life we have one, two, three of those, you know, those people who are like, they are in it with us, the good, the bad, the ugly, the messy, the like, they, they will show up and be there. But the, the interesting thing is, is that like, that that's not most of our friends, you know, and, and that's okay. Because it might be like, as you were saying earlier, like, you know, some of those friends may have been because we had kids the same age. And we were shuttling to the same bar and bat mitzvahs, or we were, you know, relying on each other to figure out, you know, when to sign up for teacher conferences or whatever else it was, or we went through the processes together. And I think that sometimes like it is inevitable that those friendships, you know, in the first or second tier will change because we thank God are always growing and evolving. And I feel like if we really allowed ourselves the space, most people would see that sometimes you outgrow other people. You know, or sometimes, you know, you just have like moved in different directions or have different things that you're interested in now at this stage of your life or different ways of being or different, whatever it might be. And I think that um, it's really a beautiful opportunity for us to, to really sort of figure out like in this moment of time, you know, what, what matters most to me, what brings me joy what brings me meaning or fulfillment or a sense of, um, you know, a sense of, of, um, wholeness and who are the people that I really want to spend my precious time with? Because I think more than anything, Jill, in like our stage of life, like, you know, we're not, thank God, we're not looking towards the end of our lives, but you realize that like, you know, maybe we're, halfway there if we're lucky, you know, and it's all pretty precious. So who are the people that you want to share the journey with? And who are the people that make you laugh, that make you feel safe, that make you feel cared for, that help lift you up? And I feel like, you know, we can sort of choose them and hope that they choose us. <laughs> You and I are around the same age, which makes us this sandwich generation right now, where we're smack dab in the middle of aging parents and little kids who aren't so little, and it's a really stressful, intense time. Does Judaism offer any support or comfort for us during this time? Within Judaism, we have um, 
a responsibility to teach our kids to make sure that they have a profession that they can be self-supporting. Um, so I guess in today's terms, we would say that they could thrive, you know, however mm-hmm. we want to qualify that. Mm-hmm. Mostly I would say that um, within Judaism, you know, through through our guidelines and also through our stories, like we learn that we have to teach our kids how to sustain themselves. We have to teach them how to, how to swim, sort of those life skills that they'll need to... Uh, to endure their days. Um, we learn in the story of Abraham that we need to like make sure that they have love in their lives. Um, just as Isaac Abraham did, did for his son Isaac. And um, you know, we we need to take care of them. Um, the interesting thing in the Torah is that it teaches us that um that we are obligated to love. We're obligated to love a lot. Um, we're obligated to love. Um, God, we're obligated to um, to love our neighbors. We're obligated to love the stranger, which I think is so interesting. Um, and there's an idea that like love your neighbor as as yourself. So in there, you would say that you know there's some sort of obligation to to also you know if we're going to be able to love our neighbor, that we also need to know how to love ourselves. Um, but the one thing that that Judaism doesn't instruct us in is that we don't actually have to love our children. We have to take care of them. We need to teach them. We need to sort of nurture them and grow them. Um, and we don't need to love our parents actually either, which is also super interesting. We need to honor them and we need to revere them, but we don't need to love them. So you need to actually, in some ways, like do loving things for both your children and your parents, but it doesn't mandate that we actually feel the emotion of love, which is a very interesting thing. Um, I, I know, I know it's like one of those, like, you know, beautiful mysteries, um, of, of the Jewish tradition and, and of God's will and ways. Um, I think in some ways, you know, you know, for me just to sort of make sense of that, I think in some ways, um, there's a funny story that just popped into my head, but I, I had, there was a rabbi once and, and he made Aliyah to Israel. He was living in Israel and his father was coming to visit him. I think that's how it went. His father was going to visit him. And he said like, Abba, I'm so excited to have you coming. And he was like, you're going to be here. We're going to do all these fun things. And then he, the dad called him as like, Avram, like I'm going to be landing at two o'clock. I'm just wondering if you're going to come to get me to the, from the airport. And he was like, dad, he's like, I'm so excited to see you, but I'm really busy. Um, so I'm going to send someone else. And he's like, Avram, I know how much you love me. Just come get me from the damn airport. Right. Like, it's just this idea that like, sometimes it's not in like the professing your love and saying, I love you and love you. It's like doing deeds that show that you care. And I think within the Jewish tradition, the idea is that um, that we do certain things that show our devotion and our commitment. But I don't think the tradition or God was really like actually too worried about whether love was there and trying to evaluate it and quantify it and define love, like just do loving things. So the things that we are instructed to to do for our parents in the Jewish tradition is to honor them and revere them. And so basically it says like, we need to, um, <laughs> we're not supposed to ever call our parents by their first names. 
or not supposed to um, like sit at their, in their chair or stand in their place. Like, you know, if, if they have a, you know, an Archie Buncher, Archie Bunker type of chair, like you can't sit in that, right. Or like a place at the table, like you sort of have to honor your parents' place. Um, you're responsible for making sure that they are fed and clothed and cared for. But the tradition actually, interestingly enough, also creates a space that like, if your parents is problematic to you, and there are many examples within the Jewish tradition that sort of illuminate what that means. If a parent is abusive to you, if, if they're just abusive in general, and, and it's too hard for you, then you actually don't need to be doing that caregiving yourself. You can make sure that someone is doing it. And then in that way, you actually do fulfill your responsibilities to, to your parents. As a child, it's honoring and revering is by making sure that they are cared for. Um, so it's an interesting sort of question, you know, how much we have to do for our children and for our parents. And I would say that we're, we have obligations to both, but I would say that, you know, one of the dangers I think is that, um, if you don't create time also to take a break from that care, the consuming care, what ends up happening is that people can become resentful and overwhelmed, or sometimes do that like beautiful giving with a, with a reluctant, resentful or angry or hardened heart. You know, especially I think if you have a parent or parents that, you know, don't appreciate, you know, all that, all that you're trying to do or all that you're doing. So I think that part of it in living in the world, you know, where people are living a lot longer they're outliving their friends a lot more often. They're going for doctors and hospital trips. And, you know, it's like a constant roller coaster. Um, and just, you know, at it for decades, you know, we, it's hard to know, you know, it, it's hard to treat it like a sprint when it's a marathon. And one of the things I think that we could do more of maybe in our world is try to find groups that can support us you know, as we make the journey as, as caregivers, um, you know, to try to, um, have real relationships, safe places where you can say, you know, this is really hard. You know, as an example, last night, my dad moved in with us three years ago or three and a half years ago now. And I had a daughter who had like wisdom teeth pulled and I had a dad who, um, you know, he's, he's having a ton of like pain right now. And, kidney issues and heart issues and all those other things. So at one point I like looked at their meds and I was like, what if I give some of her meds to him tonight? And like, I was like, <laughs> you know, trying to, I did check in with his primary care doctor, but, but it like did occur to me that like, you know, they both had appointments at the same time, you know, who do you privilege? Like, how do you, how do you sort of do it all? And I don't know that there's any answer and there's certainly not any formula, but I would just say like, and it's hard to do, I find it really hard to do, make sure that you're also taking care of you and that you have, that you have someone that you can turn to and just say like, you know, right now it just feels really hard or maybe even people that can, can share that, you know, that journey together. I think one of the things that our community, and I don't mean this in Jewish community, I mean, in general, you know, are in dire need of is like sort of what I think of in my mind is like Hineni circles, like groups of people that are like 
50 big that are like, I'm going to show up for you when you need me. And I'm going to ask you to show up for me when I need you. And if I can't pick up my kid because I've got to get my doc, my dad to dialysis, I'm going to just put it out there in our like WhatsApp group, you know, unabashedly admitting I just can't do it all. And I really would feel honored if you would do the same for me, you know, and I think in some ways, you know, I think we live in a society where we like to help and we need to receive, but it feels shameful to need to ask. And I think we need to sort of like break out of that space. That makes sense. And then give gratitude for those people that you have. Right. That's where you need the gratitude list at the end of the day, right? Like I had a, I had a neighbor once who was in his nineties, he was 93, Dr. Erwin Hecker. I adored that man. He was an OBGYN in our community. And one day he like came out to my car and he said to me, and I thought it was going to be a rebuke, but he was like, you're always running around and rushing here and there and everywhere at like all hours of the day and night. And he was like, don't you ever just stop? And I was like, and I was waiting for it to be like that, like the thing that you're doing is not good, right? Like I was waiting for that moment. But instead what he said to me was like something beautiful that I've held on to like every day of my life since. He looked at me and very slowly said to me, there will come a day where you will miss this. And it still sends chills like up my arms, right? Like the gift of being able to like go and do and rush and produce and you know, fulfill and like to be able to do all of the stuff that we do in a given day. Like I sometimes secretly feel like I wear a cape, you know, like it's like, it's like superhero stuff, but it's not just me. It's like all of us, like at the end of the day, when you look back and think about all that we've accomplished and given and done and been, and, you know, like, I feel like we sort of deserve to be celebrated, you know, and the world's not celebrating us. So like, you know, maybe we should just celebrate ourselves sometimes and say at the end of the day, like, you know, you had asked about a spiritual practice. Like I try to start my mornings, like in addition to my prayer life, it's, I start to, um, I try to just say good morning to myself and I love you. And then I try to end with some sort of like, you did good you know, and I have like an evening prayer practice, which is like letting go of the day, you know, and, you know, anything that didn't get done, you know, any hurts that I may have incurred, anything that I may have done to someone else unintentionally to hurt them. But I also think it's like really nice to just stop at the end of the day and be like, I did it. And I did it really well, you know, like be our own cheerleaders. And the things I didn't do well, I have tomorrow for. <laughs> right, 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 right. And that's where you're like, I'm only human. You know? yes. <laughs> <laughs> Rabbi Sorokin, thank you so, so much for your time. It was so fun to sit down with you and you have so much wisdom to offer. Thank you so much, Jill. I loved our time together. She's Got Issues is produced by Kira Shine, Play Audio Agency, and me, Jill Smokler. We would be so appreciative if you could rate and review the podcast. And don't forget to check out the magazine, she'sgotissues.com. See you next time.